My conclusions about the career of Sir Bernard Spilsbury are based largely on Home Office, Metropolitan Police and other official files, many of which were originally closed for 75 to 100 years and which were opened on my application in a process akin to pulling out hen's teeth. My unforgiving view of Spilsbury, as it's been described, is entirely my responsibility and not that of those who've so generously helped me with my project. Although Spilsbury's career encompassed many aspects of forensic medicine, I've chosen to concentrate on his appearances in murder trials for this critical assessment, not least because my own experience as a barrister in criminal practice has impelled me to the view that several defendants were wrongly convicted of murder and hanged on what was essentially flawed evidence. Now, who was Sir Bernard Spilsbury? He was a founder of the modern cult of forensic pathology. He was effectively the first dedicated forensic pathologist in England. By outstandingly skillful presentation in court, he brought forensic pathology out of its Victorian shadows and into the public arena. He didn't take refuge in medical jargon. He didn't use 12 words where one would do. And he explained complex pathological and toxicological problems in words that lay people could understand without sacrificing the accuracy of meaning. I've got to move in a little bit slightly, I think. Is that all right? Can, can everybody hear me? Good. He gave minute attention to detail and, without doubt, showed dogged persistence in the face of the most daunting post-mortem conditions. By the 1920s, his court appearances in a series of celebrated murder trials had made his name a household word, a media celebrity whose A-list fame was reflected in the words Spilsbury called in on newspaper hoardings celebrating the discovery of some particularly gruesome crime. Standing, quotes alone and unchallenged as our greatest medico-legal expert, unquote, his became a worldwide reputation. In the 20s, detective stories are based on his character. By 1934, Time magazine in the United States was saluting Spilsbury as the living successor to mythical Sherlock Holmes. And on this side of the Atlantic, Punch published a four-page cartoon of the great pathologist, and newspaper readers voted Spilsbury best read, along with Greta Garbo, F.D. Roosevelt, Lloyd George, Gracie Fields, and Mussolini. Government ministers sought advice on matters wildly beyond his expertise. No matter. At the height of his fame, his was always, quotes, the very best opinion that can be obtained, the words of one judge, the delight indeed of trial judges, policemen, and prosecutors. So hero then, but why villain? One great advocate whose father knew Spilsbury very well describes Spilsbury to me as a prima donna increasingly thought of as a bit of a rogue. Before revealing the terrible shortcomings exhibited during Spilsbury's 40 years as forensic pathologist, we must look briefly at his background, education, personal and professional life. <clears throat> Bernard Henry Spilsbury was born in Leamington Spa in May 1877. His father was a wholesale and analytical chemist who later became a successful manufacturer of synthetic rubber. And this is no rags to riches story, although Spilsbury's adolescent education was badly fragmented between three different day schools as his father moved around the country. Here's a picture of the young Spilsbury on the left with his two sisters and younger brother. This dislocation in his education and adolescence seems to have been a prime cause of Spilsbury's notoriously aloof, cold, even frigid personality. At the end of his life, even his two closest acquaintances could not truly be described as friends in the accepted sense of the word. Maybe he felt more at home with corpses, patients who would never question his judgment, recover unexpectedly, or answer him back. In 1895, Spilsbury went up to Magdalen College, Oxford, to study physiology. <clears throat> Although not a public school man in the cliched sense, 
He exhibited an arrogance and idleness, at least in his first couple of years as undergraduate, that astounded and exasperated his tutors. He disliked reading medical textbooks, much preferring practical work in the laboratory. He was regarded as something of a know-all, too confident of his powers, in the words of one lecturer, failings which emerged only too clearly during his professional career. He managed to achieve unexpectedly second-class honours. They tipped him for a third. This was, of course, better than expected, but by no means the achievement of a high flyer. Significantly, Spilsby gained no gold medals, won no major awards or scholarships in his educational career. His choice of hospital, however, was truly first class, St. Mary's Paddington. It would be the making of him. In 1899, he enrolled there as a medical student. Underfunded, relatively understaffed, in dire need of new buildings, St. Mary's in the early 1900s was nonetheless at the cutting edge of medicine in England, developing an outstanding team of surgeons, physicians, bacteriologists, toxicologists, and, although not always appreciated by the medical elite, pathologists. By the turn of the 20th century, forensic pathology was still regarded as the beastly science, a hangover from scandals in the mid-Victorian era. High-flying consultants with expensive private practices in Harley Street and Wimpole Street regarded post-mortem examinations as infradig, something for lab assistants, medical students, and very junior doctors indeed. Spilsbury, always the loner, relished this unfashionable work and soon found his niche in the post-mortem room, uncomfortably near the Metropolitan District Railway, whose train shook the gloomy basement where he worked so painstakingly in those early years, gradually assembling, if you'll forgive me, a corpus of knowledge that, from 1905, began to fill the famous black notebooks and case cards that recorded over 20,000 post-mortems in a 40-year career. This career also included him giving evidence for the prosecution, and I've underlined that in my note here, in over 200 English murder trials, only a handful of which ended in acquittal. These are the chilling words of his first biographers, Brown and Tullett, in their remarkably uncritical life of Spilsbury, first published in 1951. Spilsbury's character was deeply conservative. He was youthfully religious, and in fact turned down for the Methodist ministry. And chaired, however, the prevailing reactionary outlook common among the senior staff at St. Mary's. Although he was personally polite, reserved, and never grand or arrogant in manner, unlike many of his colleagues, Spilsby abhorred the idea of women doctors and seems to have agreed with Sir Elmworth Wright, the great bacteriologist at St. Mary's, who once notoriously declared, woman belongs to the logical underworld, and thus did not deserve the vote. Spilsby was also a firm opponent of socialized medicine, despite the fact that most of his income from coroner's courts and trial appearances, of course, came from public funds. Uh, strongly opposed the Lloyd George reforms, which laid the foundation for the NHS. He took a high moral line on abortion and regarded male homosexuality as unnatural vice. He would have agreed with an outspoken physician at St. Mary's who castigated contemporary developments in psychiatry in Vienna as the work of a bunch of prurient sexio-psychologists exhibiting some sexual kink possessed by themselves. Now, in 1910, Spilsby emerged onto the media stage in the Crippin trial. The background story is well known, and I don't propose to repeat it here. While Crippin awaited trial at the Old Bailey, Spilsby was headhunted, along with other St. Mary's luminaries, by Richard Muir, the chief prosecuting counsel. Photogenic in the extreme, Spilsby's handsome, tall figure elegantly clad in black tail coat, striped trousers, carnation buttonhole, featured in the mass circulation dailies. 
New technologies which had caught Crippin accompanied improvements in photographic reproduction, greatly dispelled with benefit in the illustrated papers and magazines. Here's an example of one from a, a later trial, the Brides in the Bath case, but it's quite typical of the sort of publicity that Spilsbury is getting, and you can see his figure reproduced on the left. The crux of the prosecution case in Crippin was whether the remains found in the cellar at Crippin's house included an abdominal scar. Crippin's wife, Cora, having once had an operation to remove an ovary. Spilsbury worked under the direction of Augustus Pepper, a brilliant St. Mary's surgeon who had dabbled in pathology from the 1880s and who became a home office pathologist, though never a full-timer like Spilsbury. Curiously, although Spil Pepper examined the remains for some hours on the 15th of July 1910, it wasn't until the 8th of August that he decided that there was evidence of scar tissue. Unhappily, this was after news about the abdominal operation that emerged at an inquest held on the 18th of July, and Pepper hadn't seemed to have discovered the scar when he, as I say, examined the remains uh, on the 15th of July. Even more oddly, Spilsby didn't begin to examine the tissue microscopically until early September, by which time there was evidence of putrefaction in the specimens. In court, Spilsby cut an impressive figure as he quietly declared his certainty that the slide sections showed scar tissue, basically because of lack of evidence of hair follicles and or sebaceous glands. He carefully explained his conclusions and avoided jargon, which is excellent, but his air of certainty, which would feature in so many later murder trials, suggested that forensic pathology was somehow an absolute science capable of absolute proof, a very dangerous proposition indeed. He said, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind as regards the scar. Spilsbury did not do doubt, and his word carried the day. Crippen was hanged. Muir, the prosecutor, thought, that without Spilsbury's evidence, Crippen might even have walked free from court. Did Spilsbury see what he said he saw? Putting aside recent DNA evidence claiming that the remains were not Cora's and were indeed male, there is now a strong reason to doubt Spilsbury's conclusion that this was scar tissue. A defence witness, Dr Turnbull, rather unfairly discredited at the trial, prepared a convincing written analysis of the slide of evidence in 1917 in a document which can be seen in the Royal London Hospital Archive. In the 1950s, Dr. Francis Camps, a later home office pathologist, examined the slides and also did, uh, also did not accept Spilsbury's view. In 2002, Professor Bernard Knight, the home office pathologist who worked, among other uh, famous uh, cases, um, uh, on the Fred and Rosie West murder inquiry, came to the same conclusion. He formed the view that the slides did not show what Spilsbury said, they, they, they said he saw. And interestingly, despite Spilsby's reputation for pinpoint accuracy, it appears that he accidentally inverted two of the sections in his numbered slide samples. Pepper retired shortly after the trial. Spilsby, then only 33, succeeded him as the honorary pathologist of the Home Office, a title apparently invented specially for him. His reputation soon burgeoned. In the trial of Frederick Seddon for poisoning with arsenic his unhygienic lodger, for her money, he exemplified a technique likened to a neat drop shot at Wimbledon, giving bland answers in cross-examination until, quite unexpectedly, ramming home his original finding. Here's one example. He agreed with an inexperienced defence counsel that the reddening of the gut found at Place Morton was consistent with ordinary epidemic diarrhoea that hot summer of 1911, that this could extend over some 10 to 12 days, that the absence of evidence of other disease was also consistent with epidemic diarrhoea, and that indeed there was nothing inconsistent with the GP's death certificate finding it was epidemic diarrhoea. That is so, Edward Spilsbury, 
with the one exception of the condition of the preservation of the body. Of course, that was the point. Arsenic tends to preserve tissue from decomposition, collapse of the defense. In 1915, Spilsby led the prosecution medical team in the Brides in the Bath case, where he had to grapple with severe decomposition in two of the three victims, one of, uh, one of the more heroic uh, post-mortems he had to uh, undertake. He disclaimed responsibility for the experiment in which a nurse, clad in bathing drawers, was suddenly yanked under water in a bath and nearly drowned. His fame was now firmly established and his likeness again featured in the mass circulation press. A little closer? Right. Is that better? Do speak up if you can't hear. Spilsbury must bear a major share of responsibility for a gross miscarriage of justice in the case of David Greenwood. Shown here, <coughs> convicted in February 1918 of the rape and murder of Nellie True, aged 16, the crime occurring on Eltham Common. <coughs> Greenwood, then aged 20, was of unblemished character, had a fine service record, invalided out of the army in 1917 after three years in the trenches, nearly buried alive by a shell, suffering disordered heart action and in hospital for over two months, suffering from severe influenza. In outline, the defence was that Greenwood was physically too weak to overcome his victim, who was a keen swimmer, an athlete, and only too plainly had put up a very brave and protracted struggle with her attacker. The prosecution case is essentially circumstantial, deriving from the finding of a military badge and a plain coat button, similar to items possessed by Greenwood, who lived in an area populated by thousands of soldiers, ex-servicemen, and workers in the Woolwich Musicians' factories. His defence was handled as a poor prisoner's brief by an inexperienced single junior counsel who probably couldn't get funds to call independent medical evidence. Yes, of course. Can you hear what I'm saying? Yes, okay. Do speak up if you can't. Um, Spilsbury appeared for the Crown and was the only medical witness of significance. Far from being the independent witness he should have been, Spilsbury is obviously too, too obviously partisan and his pointed failure to assist the defence was cruelly effective. He simply battered the defence away, suggesting, contrary to the facts, that Greenwood could somehow have recovered his health and strength in three months of grave illness. The effect of Spilsbury's testimony was devastating, remembered long afterwards by the officer in the case. A simple report, said one of Spilsbury's contemporaries, of Spilsbury's attendance at a mortuary is enough to condemn an accused to death even before committal proceedings have begun. Condemned to death, Greenwood was reprieved, much to the annoyance of King George V, by a courageous Home Secretary who clearly had lingering doubts about the case. Greenwood served 15 years penal servitude in jail for a crime he did not commit. In, 19, in 2005, in previously closed Home Office papers, I discovered the identity of the real murderer in a truly shocking case that demands an official pardon. In 1923, Spilsbury became the first dedicated forensic pathologist to be knighted. He had served the Home Office well, regularly appearing on the Crown's side in murder and other grave criminal trials, and of course, as a Home Office pathologist, did not appear for the defence in England. Supposedly an independent witness, he was, quote, to all intents and purposes, a member of the CID, the words of his first biographers, closely steeped in prosecution culture. Spilsbury's evidence was instrumental in convicting the Hay-on-Wise solicitor Herbert Armstrong for poisoning his wife with arsenic in a highly publicised case which may have prompted the new Prime Minister, Bonner Law, to honour the honorary pathologist for the knighthood. In summary, the prosecution case in Armstrong 
was that Mrs. Armstrong had been slowly poisoned by her husband over a long period, and that when she finally became bedridden with illness, he fed her a massive dose of arsenic within twenty-four hours of her death. There was evidence that she had been una unable to get out of bed for some four days before she died. Mrs. Armstrong, however, was addicted to pat patent medicines, some which included arsenic. There was arsenic in the house, supposedly used as a weed killer, and she was neurotic, depressive, and had talked to suicide. Mrs. Armstrong had been buried for some nine months before her exhumation on a bitterly cold January afternoon in 1922. Unsurprisingly, the body was badly decomposed. Spilsby found a small colony of beetles living in the feet, samples of which he thoughtfully sent to a Mr. Blair at the entomology department of the British Museum. Some organs, however, had been preserved by the effect of the arsenic in her system. At the trial, Spilsby ignored contemporary scientific evidence based on the Witthaus theory, that inferences drawn from the concentration of arsenic in particular organs are unreliable because arsenic can move through the tissues in the process of decomposition. Broadly speaking, the Witthaus theory is accepted today, but Spilsbury, the heart of his form, prevailed, defeating the defence argument that the large dose might have been taken some eight days before death, the poison being slowly released into the system, a dose taken perhaps accidentally or in a suicide attempt. The jury took their cue from the words of the judge, the egregious Mr. Justice Darling, who virtually directed them to accept Spilsbury's evidence. This is what the judge said. Did you ever see a witness who more thoroughly satisfied you that he was absolutely impartial, absolutely fair, absolutely indifferent as to whether his evidence told for one side or the other? Armstrong may have killed his wife, but with Spilsbury and Darling batting for the other side, he didn't stand a chance. Spilsbury's silence on a vital issue nearly resulted in the execution of another young soldier, Drummer Dernley, in 1923. Denley was convicted of murdering his best friend, Drummer Ellis, whose tightly bound body was found near their barracks at Aldershot. The defence was that the pair had been playing a game of cowboys and Indians that had gone disastrously wrong. The prosecution suggested, absurdly with the knowledge now available, that Denley had killed Ellis in the course of a fight over a girl. Two days before the execution date, Denley's grave had already been dug, when a sharp-eyed prison governor noticed a curious phrase in what was to be Dernley's last letter. Dernley was later reprieved because subsequent investigation revealed that he and Ellis had enjoyed a deep and long-standing sadomasochistic relationship, complicated by the amorous attentions of their platoon sergeant. The authorities moved quickly to avert a major public scandal, and the papers, like so many others opened recently on my application, in fact 2005, originally endorsed the words, heavily underlined in red ink, no one is to see them. Spilsbury later told colleagues his view that death was a result of a sadomasochistic exercise involving partial asphyxiation, supposed to enhance sexual pleasure. Research shows that he made no mention of this conclusion in any of his reports. His, his evidence at the trial made no mention of it, and there was no memorandum submitted to the Home Office after conviction to that effect. Officials were, in short, totally unaware of Spilsbury's conclusions. Although the authors of the 1951 biography suggested that Spilsbury's opinion that death had occurred during consensual sadomasochistic role-play might have contributed to the reprieve, it is clear that, on the contrary, Dernley, who would have been a degenerate and pervert in Spilsbury's eyes, was to be left to his fate. In 1924, Spilsbury took a starring role in a seriously gruesome forensic inquiry, perhaps that's a bit unkind because quite a few of the previous ones have been pretty gruesome too, into the death of Emily Kay, a woman in her 30s murdered by her lover, the psychopath Patrick Mann.
The crime occurred at a former Coast Guard cottage converted into an unlikely holiday home on a dreary stretch of shingle near Eastbourne, known locally as the Crumbles. Mahon had variously burnt, boiled, chopped up and pulverised his victim into over a thousand pieces of bone flesh, which had ripened in the tiny bungalow over ten days in May 1924. It must rank as one of the most disgusting dismemberments on record. Spilsby's sense of smell, luckily, was notoriously defective, perhaps due to, perhaps due to his 50-a-day cigarette habit, although the stench was such that he was eventually forced to work outside in the walled garden of the cottage, as you can see here. Happily for Spilsby's public image, no screens were erected by police, and Spilsby, in effect, performed, performed his post-mortem examinations in front of an admiring audience of several hundred of the morbidly curious citizenry, plus assorted journalists and press photographers. The photograph shows him pulling a silk-knitted yellow jumper, heavily blood-stained, from Emily's leather hat-box, in which it was accompanied by some 37 pieces of rotting flesh. I'm given to understand that the table, which you can see, though, in fact, had on it pieces of that, uh, uh, the contents of the hat-box and other interesting parts of poor Miss, Miss Kay, but they had been airbrushed out for the readers of the Daily Chronicle, uh, in which it appeared. Members of Parliament later criticised the ghoulish pictures and unseemly scenes, but Spilsby unfazed carried off the remains of St. Bartholomew's Hospital to where he had moved in 1919 after a spat with colleagues at St. Mary's, and over three days he painstakingly reassembled what was left of Emily, a remarkable feat of pathology for the time and one which must redound to his credit. Unfortunately, however, the skull was never found, so that for all his work the cause of death remained an informed guess, that's to say a blow or blows to the skull. After Mahon had been duly executed at Wandsworth, Spilsby took his revenge by undertaking an unusually detailed post-mortem on the man whose evidence had helped to hang, and he'd do the same in the case of other convicted murderers. As Richard Gordon, the author of Doctor in the House, so mordantly puts it, Spilsby could achieve single-handed all the legal consequences of a homicide, arrest, prosecution, conviction, and final post-mortem, requiring only the brief assistance of the hangman. The following year, Spilsby secured, not too strong a word, the conviction of Norman Thorne, a young man uh, who was an unsuccessful poultry farmer living at Crowborough. Thorne had been engaged to Elsie Cameron, a typist and neighbour of Thorne's parents in Kensal Rise, London. Elsie had an extremely possessive and neurotic personality, and Thorne, away from her suffocating attentions in Kensal Rise, took up with the Crowborough girl. Elsie, deluding herself that she was pregnant, turned up at Thorne's hut, his on-site living quarters, one December afternoon. By midnight, she was dead. Thorne cut up the body and buried it in the chicken run. He denied having struck Elsie, but there was evidence of sufficient bruising on her body to support the theory that there had been a struggle between them before she died. The real issue of the trial was whether Elsie had died in an attempted or sham suicide, a gesture designed to win back her errant boyfriend. The remains had lain in the soil for some six weeks before exhumation, although Thorne had thoughtfully buried the head in, uh, and part of the neck in a biscuit box, hoping to preserve the marks of the rope upon her neck. Although Thorne had already been charged with murder, Spilsby conducted a post-mortem on the 15th of January 1925 in the absence of any defence medical representative. Aware of Thorne's claim, he examined the neck. No groove in the neck other than a fold in the skin, he wrote, but he did not at that time take a section of the grooves or make any microscopic examination of the area. Moreover, there is a significant discrepancy in his account. He maintained later that the neck was in perfect condition at his first post-mortem, but later said that the brain was in an advanced state of putrefaction and crumbled away 
evidence doesn't sit easily with the earlier assertion. The cause of death was given as shock due to bruises on the face to the head, legs, and feet. But people do not die from bruising per se, and Spilsby himself would later say, shock I regard as one of the most overworked terms in the medical legal vocabulary. Thorne, who had expected the evidence to support his hanging claim, was shocked by Spilsby's conclusions. Three weeks later, after Elsie's remains had inexplicably simply been reburied, a second post-mortem was held, this time by Spilsbury and Thorne's medical team, headed by Dr. Robert Bronte, who would become one of Spilsbury's bitterest enemies. This time, sections of the neck tissue were taken by each party. Spilsbury showed nothing of significance, but those taken by the defence showed, it was said, extra possession of blood in the tissues consistent with hanging. That's one of the uh, slides that Spilsbury prepared. Amid enormous publicity, Spilsbury maintained his view at the trial. Despite the testimony of Bronte, whose credibility suffered by being regarded as a garrulous Irishman, quite the opposite of Spilsbury's English sang-froid, uh, supported, I should say, that's Dr. Bronte, by two very good witnesses, Drs. Nabarro and Galt, Thorne was convicted. Spilsbury's evidence was also notable for claims now quite unsustainable regarding the order in which bruising was inflicted, leading prosecution counsel to claim, and I quote, it is quite possible to tell the difference in bruise caused 15 seconds before death and at the moment of death. Hmm. In order to counter Thorne's evidence of cutting up the body at one o'clock in the morning, Spilsbury also created a chronology wholly unreliable on an assumption about the onset of the time of rigor mortis. Spilsbury also developed a flawed chronology based on the transit of food to the gut. Here's an example. Supposing that she arrived at 5.15, in your opinion, by the condition of the stomach, was she dead by eight o'clock? Oh, yes, eight o'clock at the outside. The judge privately thought the case was manslaughter rather than murder, but nevertheless, in summing up, referred to Spilsbury's testimony as really the very best opinion that can be obtained. The jury took their cue and convicted Thorne. After the appeal was dismissed, Thorne's father spearheaded a surprisingly effective claim for reprieve. But after an extraordinary secret meeting between Joyce and Hicks, the very right-wing Home Secretary, the Lord Chief Justice, the DPP, that's bad enough as he was the prosecutor, and Spilsbury, which is worse, since he was a witness mired in dispute, the law took its course. In his final letter, Thorne called himself a martyr to Spilsburyism, which may be true. A couple of years after the execution, Helena Normanton, a pioneer woman barrister, pointed out that on the night of her death, Elsie was about to start her period. The possibility of severe, severe depression associated with PMT was never put before the court, most of whose persons, of course, were male. Normanton, noting that Elsie had previously spoken of suicide, hazarded that without that hazarded that, realising that she was not pregnant, and thus had no chance of forcing Thorne to marry her, she might well have tried to enlist sympathy by a sham suicide, a gesture which went disastrously wrong. Contrary to Spilsbury's evidence of the trial, death could have occurred instantaneously during an attempted hanging by the effect of pressure on the nerves of the neck. The, undaunted by a wave of criticism about his almost papal infallibility, Spilsbury's evidence subsequently contributed to the conviction of John Robinson for the murder of Minnie Bernati, a prostitute in his office opposite Rochester Road Police Station. That's Spilsbury in Punch, 1928. Like Thorne, Robinson had cut up the body, although this time the bits were not buried, but put into a large wicker trunk, deposited in Charing Cross left luggage office, where a disagreeable odour eventually attracted the attention of the staff. The core issue is whether the woman, who had a reputation for violent and abusive behaviour, fell to the floor in the course of a struggle with Robinson during an argument about payment for her services. Did she end up face down, as Robinson claimed, or on her back, as Spilsbury asserted, speculating that the woman had been suffocated by hand, 
or possibly with a cushion. And this idea only arose at a late stage in the trial process. It wasn't mentioned at committal, for example. And this was after she'd been knocked down and rendered unconscious. Spilsby's conclusions were manifestly flawed, not least because he made no microscopic examination of bruises to the right temple and over the hip. Bruising, as he said, was inflicted minutes before death. In drawing conclusions from the congestion of blood in the lungs, he gave insufficient weight to the position of the quartered remains in the trunk. In the National Archives, I found a private memorandum to the Home Office written by Spilsbury's greater contemporary, Dr. Sidney Smith, with the assistance of the noted Scottish pathologist, Professor Littlejohn. Smith and Littlejohn cogently criticized Spilsbury's evidence in terms which broadly accord with modern theories. This memorandum only saw the light of public day in 2005 when the papers were opened. It was, anyway, ignored by the Home Office and Robinson was hanged for murder. In my view, this is a case tipped from manslaughter into murder by the devastating effect of Spilsbury's testimony. Indeed, Minnie Bernati's death might even have been accidental. The execution of Sidney Harry Fox for matricide in 1930 was essentially a result of Spilsbury's flawed evidence, once again flawed by the standards of his own time. Fox is accused of murdering his invalid mother for her insurance money. She died in mysterious circumstances amid a fire in a hotel bedroom in Margate. The fire wasn't the cause of her death. The body was exhumed two weeks later. It was in very good condition, I should say, because the coffin was expensive and well-sealed. Postmortem was held by Spilsbury, working alone and without professional assistance, as usual, in the drafty schoolroom of a small Norfolk village. Mrs. Fox presented the appearance of an elderly woman who had died naturally. There was no sign typical of manual strangulation. Blackening of the face, marks of struggle, livid fingernails, that kind of thing. The hyoid bone, which becomes more brittle with age and which is often fractured in the course of manual strangulation, was intact, although so brittle that it broke when Spilsbury was trying to remove it. The crucial evidence which hanged Fox was a bruise said to be the size of a half crown. Of course, that's all predecible. I think it must be about 3.5 centimeters or so in, in diameter which Spilsbury said he'd seen on the back of the larynx at post-mortem. The bruise was the foundation for his conclusion that Fox had strangled his mother, who suffered from fairly advanced Parkinson's disease, and she lay helpless in bed. Although Spilsbury later wrote, whenever you see a bruise always cut into it freely, he did not take a tissue section this time. Rather feebly, he would later claim that the so-called bruise became obscure before I put the larynx and formalin. The bruise, in his words, just disappeared. When the larynx was later examined by the defence medical team, Drs. Bronte and Sidney Smith, there was no sign of the bruise. They thought that Spilsby had seen simply a post-mortem change, a discoloration caused by the process of putrefaction, and that might be correct. More recently, Spilsby's finding has been attributed to the Prinslow Gordon artifact, an error caused by failure to ensure that the area under examination should be carried out as far as possible in a bloodless field. But as in earlier cases, Spilsby's superb presentational skills in court carried the day, despite cogent evidence that Mrs. Fox already had a grave heart condition. Indeed, the evidence suggests that she'd already had a heart attack, perhaps without knowing it, only about three months before she died. And uh, two days before she died, there was evidence she was exhibiting the first signs of cardiac failure. Put simply, Mrs. Fox had advanced heart disease and could have died at any time. Spilsbury notably played down this evidence in court, but the accounts of her symptoms and post-mortem appearance support the view that the circumstances of her death were consistent with a uh, cardiac arrest as she tried to get up out of bed to use a chamber pot. Although Fox added dis acted dishonestly after his mother's death, she had died naturally. This case is a lethal exemplar of Spilsbury's famed obstinacy, 
and can't be divorced from a consideration of Fox's character, a petty conman and former rent boy, whose victims are mostly army officers looking for a servant who would provide extras. Fox seems to have been suspected by the Director of Public Prosecutions and by Prosecuting Counsel of blackmailing a close friend of the King, who was uh, a, a well-known bisexual. It is unlikely that Spilsbury knew about that, but there is evidence that he is aware of Fox's background and sexuality, and that both he and the officer in the case held the view that society was well rid of people like Fox. Spilsbury must have known by the time the case came to trial at Lewis Assizes that his opinion about the bruise was unsustainable. He ploughed on regardless. Perjury consists of willfully giving material evidence which a witness believes to be false or doesn't believe to be true. In the Fox case, Spilsbury entered this dangerous territory. Sidney Smith considered that Fox, whatever his character defects, did not murder his mother. On a present-day overview, Smith was right and Spilsbury was wrong. It is yet another conviction based on Spilsbury's evidence, in my view, calls for an official pardon. That's Spilsbury uh, when president of the Medical Legal Association, Society rather, in 1931. In that year, A.A. A. Rouse was convicted of murdering a down-and-out in, in a Reginald Perrin-style exercise, setting fire to his car with a dead man inside, hoping that the victim would be identified as himself. Rice later claimed the car had caught fire after he got out to relieve himself. The Northamptonshire police bungled the scene of crime investigation, moving the car and the body before the crime scene could be properly recorded, and the examines remained professionally. Spilsby wasn't called in for four days. Didn't examine the charred body on the scene, of course, but in the garage of the Crown in Hardingston. The effects of intense heat, perhaps 2,000 degrees centigrade, on the human body can cause severe distortions. A defense expert later stated that one cannot draw very definite conclusions from the position or posture of the body when found. Great heat does contort the limbs. I don't think one can assume safely that the position the body was found in was the position in which the body was on death took place. Moreover, police officers first at scene gave differing accounts of the position of the body. Spilsbury, however, postulated quite firmly, despite this unsatisfactory evidential background, that the victim had either been pitched or was thrown across the front seats of the car. The obvious conclusion being that he had been first struck on the head by Rouse with murderous intent. Although his original report had not mentioned the possibility and he had not referred it in committal proceedings, he added to his report before the trial started a statement that the door on that side was open when the fire started, an entirely new and deadly element which must now be seen as an unwarranted embellishment, crushing Rice's story at the car caught fire while he was some distance away. The left, Rice, who was probably guilty, but in this regard really cannot be said to have had a fair trial, was hanged in March 1931. And this conviction was probably the high point of Spilsbury's career. No forensic pathologist before or since has achieved such public recognition. And the Oxford murder that year, there is, I fear, no connection with Inspector Morse, is a graphic illustration of Spilsbury's yielding response to pr police pressure. This case was not considered worthy of mention in the 1951 biography, and official papers remained unopened until my application was granted in 2006. The simple facts are that on August Bank Holiday Monday, 1931, a widow was found battered to death at her home. The motive was robbery. Her skull bore remarkably similar fractures, according to Spilsbury, who concluded quite correctly that the head had been repeatedly struck by a hammer, which had produced several similar marks on the skull. Police arrested Henry Seymour, against whom there was circumstantial evidence, and discovered that he had bought a hammer. He was duly charged with the Oxford murder. In the first of two reports to the police, neither of which would have been available to Seymour's defence, as I emphasise, really only were revealed a couple of years ago, Spilsbury wrote, The surfaces of the head of the hammer are all too small to have caused the fractures of the skull. 
I am bound to conclude that this was not the weapon used. In a second report he stated, the injuries were not produced by this hammer. The police officer in charge of the case wasn't satisfied with this. Spilsby was summoned to a conference in Oxford where, and, and later changed his conclusions, stating at committal and at the trial that the fractures could not have been caused by the hammer in this condition. He had, he said, observed fine fibres of cotton adhering to the head in the part of the handle, from which he extrapolated the murderer, for some unknown reason, had wrapped the head of the hammer in cloth. Spilsby conducted a curious experiment which he gradually tied thicknesses of cloth and paper around the head of the skull, head of the, head of the hammer, sorry, until, surprise, surprise, the head of the hammer fit, fitted the fracture marks on the skull. His experiments now seemed risible, not least because he used a block of wood as a target. Will you not agree, asked a bold junior defence barrister, that there is a vast difference in the human head and a piece of wood? No matter, the fluff could have been the result of Seymour having kept the hammer in his coat pocket, where it's found. As so often in capital cases, Spilsby carried the day, also advancing flawed conclusions about the time of the fatal assault based on digestive tract evidence, similar to those put forward in the case of Norman Thorne. And like Thorne, Seymour was executed. After 1931, Spilsby's magic began to fade, although he became an iconic figure in the media. Press photographers, press photographers love snapping the Garbo-like way that Spilsby would hide his face. That's only one example of many, claiming to detest being photographed, although he had many studio portraits taken by fashionable West End photographers, one of which you've seen already. Privately, however, medical contemporaries and lawyers are growing skeptical of his methodology and conclusions. The case of George Kitchen, also ignored by his 1951 biographers, marks the start of Spilsby's decline. A father was accused of shooting his son, the defence being accidental discharge of, the shot, of a shotgun. Spilsbury's dubious experimentation with the gunsmith Robert Churchill, these were experiments involving calculations and rods strapped to a volunteer's body, was instrumental in persuading the DPP to charge the father with murder. At the Old Bailey trial, however, the case collapsed during Spilsbury's evidence, the judge pointedly referring to the Spilsbury-Churchill conclusions as ghastly speculation. Uh, there is no time here to review Spilsby's work with Churchill, including the notorious Merritt case in Scotland, where Spilsby made a rare appearance of defence, and the pair managed to achieve a neat defence by confusion, arising from essentially flawed experiments with a different gun and with a different batch of ammunition. These were, this was a, a tactic which allowed a guilty man to walk free, and many years later to murder again. 1934, that's a picture of Spilsbury at his daughter's wedding, um, taking his daughter into the chapel of the Savoy. I think very much the image he liked to present. Uh, that year, he was badly mauled in cross-examination by Norman Beckett, KC, in the second Brighton Trunk case, when Cecil Lewis England, alias Tony Mancini, and, and also a pimp, was charged with murdering Verlet Kay, a prostitute he'd been controlling, putting her body into a trunk. Pre-war years in the great years for the sales of uh, trunks of various sorts. The prosecution argued that Mancini had battered her head with a hammer, whereas Mancini claimed she'd fallen down a flight of stairs after taking drugs. Spurs' evidence was muddled as to which end of the hammer had caused the injuries to Violet's skull. At a very late stage in the trial, he produced a piece of bone said to be the exact piece forming a depressed fracture. The existence of this fragment of bone had not previously been revealed to the defence, and also altered his conclusions about the time and circumstances of death. Burkett lambasted Spilsby's dubiously precise chronology. Sir Bernard said that death came within two or three minutes of the blow. How did he tell? A kind of question nobody dared to ask a few years before. 
It was a devastatingly simple rhetorical question, and it contributed to Mancini's acquittal. Ironically, long after Spilsby's death, Mancini confessed to murdering Violette. An even more striking example of Spilsby's declining powers can be seen in the 1936 case of Linford Derrick, again a case often overlooked, who's accused of battering a friend to death, goodness knows what he'd done with a relative, with an old police truncheon. Spilsby had spoken of a rain of blows on the victim's skull, including three blows to the forehead. But a sharp-eyed defence counsel remembered his days during the Great War as a special constable, when he'd had a, a truncheon of his own, and he married up the marks on the forehead to the three rings around the shaft of the truncheon which formed the grip. They fitted, so there'd not been three blows to the forehead, just one. Under cross-examination, and possibly for the first time in his career, Spilsby was forced to agree that he'd made a mistake in asserting that the victim had been rendered unconscious by a whole series of blows from the truncheon. Spilsby at about that time. The man with the key to the problem, I think it says in the uh, uninspiring words of some newspaper article. During the Second World War, despite increasing health problems, Spilsby continued a punishing workload, sometimes carrying out seven postmortems a day, although these were now mostly in St Pancras and Hackney districts, because many coroners in London and the home counties wouldn't now employ him. He played a notable role in the Man Who Never Was deception, which saved thousands of Allied servicemen's lives in the Italian campaign, but the war had brought personal tragedy. His son, Peter, a house surgeon at St. Thomas's, was killed in the Blitz. Another son, Alan, who had never enjoyed good health, died of tuberculosis in 1945. Spilsby's marriage had failed long before, partly because of his affair with Hilda Bainbridge. You may remember there was um, the photograph I showed you of the uh, people around the table in 1924. There's a lady on the left-hand side. That was Hilda Bainbridge who was described as his laboratory assistant, although in the photograph she appears to be wearing a sable coat and a cloche hat. She's rather an odd uh, attire for somebody who spent her time uh, attending post-mortem examinations, but there it is. But poor Hilda died aged 40 in 1926, and Spilsby lived alone after that time. In this final phase of his career, when work was getting scarce, Spilsby would sometimes put his head round the door of the coroner's office at St Pancras, asking plaintively, is there anything for me? The end was not long delayed, Severe arthritis has made postmodern work difficult, and a series of strokes, loneliness, severe depression, possibly fears that he's developing what we'd now call Alzheimer's, uh, contributed to his bizarre suicide on the night of the 17th of December, 1947. He turned up on the gas tap of a Bunsen burner in his grim little laboratory at University College Hospital at about half past six that evening. Nobody was about and uh, people had got rather used to Spilsbury, a half-forgotten figure pottering about, as one report put it. By sheer luck, a major explosions avoided in this last nihilistic gesture because uh, a hospital porter had noticed a light on and uh, inquiries were made. Spilsbury seems also to have had scant regard for the prevailing national power shortage at that time just after the war. Despite the fame of his earlier years, only 22 mourners, and that included family members, attended the rather sad cremation at Golders Green. Robert Churchill, the gunsmith, turned up, and at first thought he'd come to the wrong service. What was Spilsby's legacy? He wrote little. He never uh, wrote, uh, wrote or edited a forensic textbook. He was regarded by his students as a dull lecturer who seemed to come alive only doing practical work in the post-mortem room. He mooted various developments, such as the establishment of a forensic science academy, but he never followed the ideas through. 
Nevertheless, Spilsbury secured a hearing for the forensic pathologist in his difficult speciality, and as he himself wrote, when medical witnesses use only technical language, juries do not appreciate the points sought to be made. <clears throat> his capacity for hard work was legendary, often working far into the night for weeks on end, but all his hard draft seems to have led to a belief that as he had done all that was humanly possible to solve a forensic problem, he must have the best answer, leading to the Jehovah complex noted by his contemporaries. His love of playing the detective led to the construction of theories dangerously beyond his capacity as a medical expert. Spilsbury wrote of an absolute certainty in the facts and a quiet confidence in the witness box, traits which aptly sum up his presentational style, but in the words of his greater contemporary, Professor Sidney Smith, Spilsbury was, I quote, I can get to my last page, very famous, but very fallible, and very, very obstinate. Sidney Smith also penned a cautionary epitaph. Years after Spilsbury's death, he wrote, one might almost hope that there will never be another Bernard Spilsbury. Thank you very much to Andrew. He um, has said that he's happy to take <coughs> questions from the floor, but if any of you wanted to use this now as an opportunity to leave before the questions, or to stand up and shake yourselves about to warm the rest of your bodies up, then um, now's your chance to leave. Go now, or I'll make you stay. <laughs> okay. So if you could repeat back the question to the audience, because it's sometimes hard to Okay. Yes, can I um, ask a question based on your last comment? Because my case, in my Canadian newspaper this morning, I never had examined the Canadian. There were two items which were constant. There is, sadly, another story still. There's a man called Smith who was the subject of a judicial. And the judge concluded that this man was following in the children's was disordered and arrogant and automatic and saw himself on the side of the prosecution. There's the first one. The second is about a man who confessed to a murder 36 years ago and now wishes to heal, saying that he wishes to call expert evidence about his confession being false. He thought the period of time and said, no, we've had enough of expert evidence. We don't want experts because our experience is bad. And so putting those two stories together, my question is, <laughs> That's a tough one to answer. How do you avoid throwing out the baby with the bathwater? Uh, <laughs> well, I suppose it's a matter of assessment in court. Spilsbury carried the day because he was working at his time. In his time, he was the first in his field. Uh, he was a superb witness, as I've hoped to indicate to you. He seemed convincing. 
uh, and it's just a matter of ensuring that the trial process uh, works properly. And happily, in our own time, we know, and I, of course I won't mention any names, but in recent cases there have been assertions made uh, about uh, the incidence of certain happenings, one in 70 million, something of that sort, which are obviously capable of challenge. Uh, so we've still got this problem with us. I think things have greatly improved since Pillsbury's day. Uh, perhaps I should say, in fairness to Spilsbury, he helped a bit himself by introducing more rigorous examination uh, of post-mortem conditions, by, particularly by police officers, and introducing what was called the murder bag in 1924 when he saw the officer in the dismemberment case, that's the Crumble case, Crumble's case, handling pieces of bare flesh, or handling pieces of flesh, rather, with his bare hands, which, of course, is unhygienic as well as being potentially damaging to the forensic findings. But it is a matter, I think, of being uh, eternally vigilant with all expert witnesses, wherever they claim to come from. <laughs> yes. Yes, I think that must be right. I mean, Spilsbury became an all-purpose expert. He's asked questions about all sorts of things. One case I didn't have time to go into, and I won't go into any detail now, of course, was the, uh, the Rex Bourne, the Alec Bourne case, where uh, it involved the prosecution of Alec Bourne for performing an abortion on a girl who'd been gang-raped in um, the barracks at, at Whitehall uh, Horse Guards. And um, Spilsbury was asked by the Home Office to provide a report about the girl's psychological state. Well, obviously, he had no qualification, whatever, in these matters. And he also clashed with Bourne in another case involving um, obstetrics. And uh, I think it was pointed out that Spilsbury's experience of obstetrics was actually four weeks as a medical student in 1904. Yes. Well, it is said, said to be um, the result of the inquiry. Yes, the Royal London Hospital has a number of slides which were prepared by Spills before the Crippen case. <clears throat> and they allowed one of them to be examined by the University of Michigan in America a year or two ago. And a Dr. Ferran, he, he, heading a team, came up, came up with the uh, um, conclusion that the remains were, uh, the, there was evidence that the DNA was that of a male I don't know how far this has allowed for the possibility of contamination. These slides are, of course, only 100 years old. Um, I'm waiting for Dr. Ferran to publish a scientific paper on the subject. He's apparently going to do so. Um, of course, if they were male, it uh, puts a slightly different complexion on the, on the Crippen case. I think to start with, yes, I think gradually he got out of date, and that was really, as I tried to ex explain in my talk after the uh, early 30s, he started to go downhill. I didn't think he kept up with modern work. Um, there's a, a good example of, of uh, his deterioration in um, the 1947 uh, case, um, <coughs> the Antiquist, who was uh, gunned down in Charlotte Street, quite a celebrated trial at the time, his evidence there was really below par, and he didn't really seem to appreciate uh, uh, some of the later developments that uh, were being um, forged by, by his younger contemporaries. Um, and I often wonder whether this business of working so hard in his earlier days was to try to keep one jump ahead of people he thought might actually be 
have a little bit more upstairs than he had. Yes, yes. Yes. Yes, I mean, he meticulously recorded things. Um, uh, recently, the, there was a sale at Sotheby's and uh, a number of his case cards from 1905-1932, I think, came up and have been um, bought by the Wellcome Institute, which are now available for uh, researchers to see, and it does show that for all his faults, he was a meticulous examiner of things, and that, again, was part of his pioneer role. I shouldn't underemphasize under that um, in my assessment of his character. Well, I think that, well, it, it, as, I say, as his career progressed, more and more people did stand up to him. But in the early days, he was really the kingpin. He gave his evidence very clearly. It's the certainty, you see, because he was dealing with science, and um, in many cases, scientists have to hedge their uh, conclusions about with caveats and ifs and buts. And Spilsby didn't do ifs and buts. As I said, he didn't do doubt. And of course, for the jury and for the police, for the prosecution, the judges, that's what they want to hear. It's simple stuff. The problem was, of course, that life's more complicated than that. And um, as I say, modern developments, we hope, uh, would mean that some of the more extreme conclusions that he, he made would no longer be, would no longer be acceptable. Um, having in my own uh, career had to call medical witnesses, I can appreciate the point. Uh, very often the most um, uh, eminent and intelligent medical witnesses can come badly and stuck in court because it's that battle, the advocacy, you know, the, the ding-dong, the ping-pong, prosecution defense, they can go badly unstuck because they will perhaps hedge things about with, with, a, with, a, with a caveat here and there. You can pick on that. Of course, in Spilsby's case, um, very often he's able to get away with um, uh, just making these, these, these simple certainties. And frequently, actually, I've noticed that he was not really challenged on his experience in cases. In the early arsenic cases, he gave the impression he had a great deal of experience of arsenical poisoning, and it appears he didn't really have it at all. <laughs> yes. Thank you.
uh, for available in its uh, first edition form. <laughs> um, it's loosely reprinted in paperback in the ne- in the new year. But only in America. But only in America, and these are like goldfish. We haven't been able to get any of these in our shop. So if you would like to buy a copy of the book and read some more detail, then um, Andrew will be with them at the back of the room. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're very welcome. You're very welcome.